0: The threat of nuclear war is greater than ever. That's the warning from Britain's National Security Advisor. He blames the breakdown of communication between the West, Russia and China. So what's needed to restore global security? I'm Imran Khan and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyse and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests in London, Sahil Ashar a nuclear non-proliferation and disarmament analyst. In Santander, Spain, Fabrice Poitier, CEO of the consultancy Rasmussen Global. And in Toulouse, France, Alexander Titov, a lecturer in modern European history at Queen's University Belfast. A warm welcome uh, to each of you. I want to begin in London with uh, Sahil Shah. There is a very famous film, Dr Strangelove, which is almost a parody, but also a warning um, about, the, about the way two countries can get into an accidental nuclear war. It was designed as a parody, but a lot of what was in that film, a lot of the central tenet of foreign policy, is that there are back channels, and those back channels will always save us. But now we have Stephen Lovegrove, National Security Advisor to
1: the UK, saying those back channels don't exist. Is he right? Well, you know, uh, it's no secret to you or your audience, Imran, that we're in a major Russia-West crisis, and that includes the ongoing conflict in Ukraine, but it's actually much wider than that. And I think we all have to ask ourselves, um, what kind of Russia-West crisis do we want? Do we want a deep Cold War, or do we want how it was during the latter parts of that period, where we actually communicated with the adversary and we worked together to try to muddle through despite our differing worldviews? At the moment, it is true the lack of dialogue between the U.S. and Russia and NATO and Russia is putting us in a very precarious position because it's not just the back channel forms of communication that are necessary. We also need very, very resilient and smart Uh, front-end channel communication. So, for example, between Presidents Biden and Putin. Um, And if we are to stumble into some sort of a nuclear conflict, I'm currently not confident, for example, that the hotline that exists between Washington and Moscow uh, would be able to technically uh, stand up to the challenges that would happen in a degraded environment in the middle of a nuclear war, for example. So Stephen Lovegrove's uh, comments at CSIS in D.C. yesterday were very important. And it's a very, very important reminder that we need to make sure that we have the ability to communicate clearly and smartly to the adversary, because that's how we got out of the Cold War. And that's how we'll also get out of this current Russia-West crisis. Let me bring in Fabrice Potier
0: here. Uh, Fabrice, this is not just about Russia. China is also a very big concern for not just Stephen Lovegrove, but communications with China generally. Um, But we're in a position now where... Perhaps we don't need that kind of communication, that big red telephone. There's drones, there's satellites nowadays. We've got different types of tech. You have monitoring uh, going on. You have other channels. Uh, are, are those traditional methods of thinking kind of outdated?
2: Not really, but I think what is not uh, up-to-date is uh, the way we speak, including about nuclear deterrence. So I think I slightly disagree with the previous uh, speaker. <clears throat> it's not the, the, the lack of dialogue Because actually, it's not for the lack of having tried to engage, especially with Vladimir Putin. I mean, President Macron, NATO itself, the U.S. administration have all tried to reach out to the Russian president. It's the lack of interest on his side to uh, truthfully and meaningfully engage with the West and try to minimize the risks of, of conflict and incident. And I think fundamentally what we have to focus on on our side is really what kind of language we want to speak, and, and on nuclear, for example, the fact that Vladimir Putin used the, the nuclear, agitated the nuclear flag uh, very early on in his war of aggression against Ukraine that didn't really get a response from the Western nuclear powers was actually a, a confirmation that the West has lost a bit of the nuclear deterrence grammar. And we need first to relearn the grammar before engaging in a meaningful dialogue.
0: Uh, let me bring in uh, Alexander Titov here. Uh, he makes, uh, Fabrice makes a very interesting point about learning grammar and and language and history. The 62 Cuban Missile Crisis, everybody knows that the, the Russians put missiles into Cuba, which freaked out America because it was 90 miles away from the US mainland. What everybody forgets is actually the only reason those missiles were in Cuba is because the Americans put missiles in Turkey, which was in Russia's backyard, effectively. There's always been a disconnect between when it comes to the language and the framing of all of this, when it comes to Russia, when it comes to China, that they're always the bad guys. Has that been unhelpful?
3: Well, uh, I think kind of if we move beyond uh, good or bad, guys, that's not uh, you know, relevant anymore. Of course, Russia is bad. Of course, China is bad. So far as the West is concerned, you know, there's nothing to discuss at the moment uh, so far as you know, those classifications are concerned. Uh, if you just go back to the, um, the initial uh, 1962 uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, that's when the red lines were put, uh, uh, sorry, when the, um, the direct phone line was put between uh, Washington and Moscow to prevent anything like this happening again. Uh, and uh, that's uh, really what created the uh, kind of Cold War uh, security architecture in terms of mutual deterrence and so forth. Was this very uh, dangerous crisis, which later led to agreements in the early 70s about uh, limitations on arms and so forth. So I'm afraid what we're having now uh, is uh, this another crisis uh, very similar to that, that one, where the red lines are blurred. There's uh, there is some communications behind the lines. The Russian um, military is speaking to. There are open lines with American military and so forth. Uh, but at the same time, the red lines are very blurred. We're having a very gradual build up uh, of uh, military assistance to Ukraine, the range of missiles and so forth, uh, which uh, previously, even four mu- three months ago, that would be unthinkable. So, uh, and Russians haven't really, really responded to this. So we are kind of pushing towards this uh, line where uh, we don't know when the Russians will actually uh, say that enough is enough and they might kind of escalate it further on their own side. So that's that's what, what is dangerous at the moment. It's not so much lack of communications, but these blurred lines, which are very reminiscent of the 1962 uh, when the last uh, big nuclear crisis happened. So I think I agree with the, um, with the first speaker that you know there are actually very, very dangerous times of living in now.
0: OK, so that's Russia, that's China, that's, uh, uh, you know, and that's the US and that's the West and there is a big red telephone and we just need to probably use it a bit more uh, than we are using it. But there isn't a big red telephone to North Korea, to Pakistan, to India, to Israel, uh, and those guys have nuclear weapons and neither of them have signed the non-proliferation treaty. Sahil, you know, what, what, is, the, what is the danger of those states, those smaller states, with nuclear weapons?
1: Sure. Let me make two quick points just to respond to my fellow panelists. The first is, um, I totally agree with Fabrice. I think the main comment that I was trying to make is that we need resilient crisis communication channels, so that if this conflict in Ukraine spirals into a wider, for example, NATO-Russia conflict, Um, that we have the ability for our leaders, whether on the nuclear brink or already past the nuclear brink, to avert complete calamity. And my second point is that a part of deterrence is, of course, being able to communicate effectively to your adversary. And if you don't have any communication channels open and you're simply relying on rhetorical posturing in public and in the media, that's a really dangerous place to be in, because it offers very little private off-ramps to be able to de-escalate the situation. Um, And when it comes to your comment just now about there already being a red telephone and uh, but we don't have them with the other states, this is why I'm nervous. It's because that bilateral channel between Washington and Moscow, there isn't one between Washington and Beijing at the leader level in the same that's created in the same way. And there also are very limited military to military channels between these three great powers. Moreover, there's no way for any of the leaders of any of these countries, um, these three countries and also the wider nine countries in the world with nuclear weapons, to be able to communicate multilaterally. So, there's no way right now for, say, Presidents Biden, um, President Putin, President Xi to get all on the phone at once, especially in a degraded environment in the middle of, say, a nuclear conflict. And we need something like that. In terms of uh, the smaller nuclear powers, the rising emerging nuclear powers, of course, it's very dangerous, and they all affect the international security environment in different ways. Right now, North Korea is expanding its nuclear arsenal. Iran is becoming closer and closer to a threshold state because of the lack of agreement between the U.S. and Iran on restoring the 2015 nuclear deal. These are all very worrying developments. And in addition to the ongoing war in Ukraine, they're going to factor in very heavily um, over the course of the next month as the international community convenes in New York to discuss that 52-year-old nuclear non-proliferation treaty, the NPT, which is really that cornerstone international treaty that governs the world in terms of setting the standards and also Mm. creating the pathways to global disarmament and keeping a cap on proliferation at the same time.
0: Uh, But, Fabrice, the NPT, the nuclear non-proliferation treaty, um... Has failed in many ways because India has nuclear weapons, Pakistan has them, Israel has them, North Korea has them. But there's no real communication between India and Pakistan right now. And that is probably the closest flashpoint uh, that we have. Fabrice, do you think there needs to be a stronger uh, NPT, uh, or at least, or, or does it need to be more uh, better policed, rather? And those countries need to sign up. We need to pressure them to sign up.
2: Frankly, I think the success of the NPT is that the failure has been contained to a handful of countries. And, and, and I think this is the key here uh, to this discussion today is a lot of non-nuclear countries are watching the, the war in Ukraine and to see how and whether the West will be sufficiently supporting Ukraine to the extent where the Ukrainians can prevail somehow in the battlefield and in the negotiations. And if we were to fail to do so, I think a lot of countries who currently are not uh, nuclear weapon uh, countries will consider uh, what is considered the ultimate guarantee, uh, which is nuclear weapons. So I think what we do here in Ukraine in uh, fundamentally what is a a conventional conflict could have some uh, very important repercussions about how the NPT is holding or not. So that's my answer uh, to kind of connect the NPT uh, to the geopolitical reality of today.
0: Uh, In Toulouse, Alexander Titov, would you agree with that?
3: Well, I think um, the uh, the point about that, I think everybody knows that the ultimate guarantee is nuclear weapons. Uh, I mean, if you look at Libya, what happened to Gaddafi when he kind of agreed to give up his weapons, and then, you know, 10 years later... uh, uh, he ended up in addition and so forth. You know, the South Korea, uh, sorry, North Korea um, uh, uh, knows it very well. Uh, uh, and um, uh, Russia is also, is so bold in Ukraine because it knows that uh, NATO, certainly United States, are not prepared to risk a nuclear war over Ukraine. Uh, so uh, we are living in the age when nuclear weapons are essentially the ultimate guarantee, which uh, gives you uh, superpower status and uh the, the question of how to prevent it uh, from uh, spreading further uh, is is, 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 an, is an important one but uh you know on the trajectory that uh, you know big states such as India Pakistan uh, I- Israel and possibly soon to be Iran as well uh, uh, if they can uh, they will acquire it because that's basically is how the world works unfortunately these days and um, um, uh, nuclear weapons, as we see in Ukraine, gives you an uh, extre- extreme advantage in terms of uh, uh, putting pressure on this. Of course, the, the key point about the regional powers—if we go back a bit, bit earlier—to earlier point is that they um, nuclear weapons are largely kind of regional uh, threat, whereas you know Russian threat is a global threat. Uh, they are the handful of the um, five, nucle- five nuclear powers, established nuclear powers, I actually have the privilege to strike anywhere else in the world, uh, which not necessarily the case with the others, but, uh, of course, they're working on that. But, yeah, that's uh, the ultimate... Uh, uh, we already we're already living in a world where ultimate guarantee of security is nuclear weapons, and there's no uh, turning back, I'm afraid.
0: The ultimate guarantee of uh, security, then, is nuclear weapons. We all seem to be agreed on that. It seems to be a doctrine, uh, certainly. Uh You mentioned Iran there. I want to talk about Iran. Um, Iran has got very close uh, to being a threshold state, as has been described. It hasn't said it has a nuclear weapons programme, has admitted to having a nuclear programme. The JCPOA, uh, the Iran nuclear deal, effectively uh, froze all those tensions and brought Iran back into the world. But then that treaty was ripped up uh, by President Donald Trump and the US is finding it incredibly difficult to renegotiate that treaty. Sahil, um, this is a failure, again, of the West, of America, because certainly no-one trusts that America will stick to its deal. That's the Iranian way of thinking right now. Why should we trust the US if they're just going to rip up uh, a deal? So why not get nuclear weapons...
1: Well, there's a growing chorus of voices in Tehran that feel that the only way for them to have the right leverage to be able to negotiate a sustained deal that they can trust with Washington and with other world powers is to increase their status from having a very uh, you know, rich uh, nuclear program to one of that of a nuclear threshold state or perhaps even getting a nuclear weapon. Unfortunately, that would be extremely risky for the entire global security architecture because it would probably incite some sort of a military conflict in the region, particularly with Israel. So we really do need to get Washington and Tehran to agree to the roadmap that was already largely decided in March of this year, but that both sides are dragging their feet on. Um, Washington has to make up for the fact that it was indeed the U.S. abrogation of the deal under President Trump that caused this trust deficit in the first place. Iran continued to comply with the deal for an entire year, before gradually reducing its implementation. Of course, we also now had President Biden come into office and drag his feet for a number of months. And then now, as we're getting closer and closer to the U.S. midterm elections, it seems that there isn't the political willpower in the White House to get the JCPOA's restoration over the finish line. And I really call on President Biden, who in October, um, before he came into the White House, wrote a very compelling CNN op-ed that said, there's a smarter way to be tough on Iran, which really made a clear argument for why it's so important to get the JCPOA back in place so that we are in a position to be able to think smart about the other issues that we have within Iran. With Iran, for example, its expanding ballistic missile Sorry, program. Sorry, Sahil, we are running it's out of really- time, and I
0: want to bring in our other guests as, as well. Uh, uh, Fabrice, uh, you've heard what Sahel has been talking about there. We do need to bring Iran back to the negotiating table. America does seem to be dragging its feet um, but what is the incentive for the West to try and force the Americans back to the negotiating table? Is there any? Is there any pressure anybody can put on them?
2: Well, I, I think the incentive is also upon the Americans to avoid, as the previous speaker said, a regional conflict and, and possibly a regional stroke nuclear conflict. And, and you have to read the, the recent US Israel joint declaration which is uh, actually very clearly uh, where the U.S. is giving to the state of Israel clear guarantees that it will not allow uh, a nuclear Iran uh, for happening. Uh, and I think that's I think the clearest signal today that the U.S. is committed not to have a, a nuclear weapon uh, uh, state uh, in the region, apart from obviously Israel, but this is not mentioned in the joint declaration. So I think there is clarity here. Uh, Whether the administration has been dragging its feet that I will not comment, but I think clearly it has its interest in finding a diplomatic solution. And I think the EU is also uh, uh, trying to do so.
0: Uh, uh, Alexander, sorry, uh, in uh, Toulouse, The EU, uh, these traditional negotiating bodies, NATO example, these things, these institutions were formulated post-Cold War to try and freeze the tensions. To some extent, they have worked. But we're looking at a different landscape now where there isn't actually a Cold War anymore. Are we moving towards the Cold War again, do you think?
3: Well, I think, you know, you can't step in the same river twice. So whatever we're moving towards would be something very different. And of course, Cold War was uh, two defining features. There were only two superpowers. uh, uh, And uh, there was also very intense ideological um, uh, standoff between them, capitalism against communism and so forth. So I think that's uh, unlikely to be repeated. First of all, there will be much more, uh, uh, centers of powers in the world. So China, Russia, um, uh, Europe, and the American protection, uh, possibly India, Iran, of course, uh, and other others. Uh, so it's not going to be a Cold War in a sense there'll be just two blocks. There'll be more more um, dispersed uh, power structures in, in, in the world um, politics. Uh, ideologically again, you know, there's something different in terms of uh, you know, great power nationalism and uh, or uh broader broad, 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 Great power rivalry, I would say, kind of it's going back to um, pre-First World War scenario when you have several great powers kind of trying to um, uh, battle each other. But uh, but yeah, nuclear weapons, of course, is the uh, is the key. And I would say that you know if if the Americans can't do Iran now, when they really desperate need more oil on the market, and Iran is the only kind of obvious place where all that extra oil can come when the Russian oil is banned. If they can't do it now, uh, I don't see how, when they're going to do it uh, ever again. And, you know, Iranians will eventually lose patience with it. And um, uh, the consequences will be very, very grave, uh, both in you know, conflict with Israel, but also Saudi Arabia and so forth. It's, uh, it's all very, very dangerous stuff. Uh, and uh, it's all very well to make a declaration with Israel that they were not allowed. But how are they not going to allow They're going to go to war with, Israel, with, uh, with Iran, mm. uh, to stop it. Uh, is that really plausible in terms of um, American spa- experience in Iraq and so forth? Iran is much. Sorry, sorry, exactly. so all are,
0: we shit. are running out. We are running out of time, and I do want to come to everybody else. There is another way of dealing with this, uh, and the Americans have actually done this to great effect in Pakistan by supporting Pakistan by giving it money, by supporting its military. It's created a whole bunch of other problems in Pakistan, but it's kept the nuclear weapons in their silos. Uh, in Spain, Fabrice. Do you think that's a a good strategy?
2: I'm not sure, given Pakistan's track record in in proliferation of some nuclear technology to other countries, including North Korea. So I I, I think Pakistan was more uh, a policy of fair complete, where uh, the U.S. had no other choice but just to, to basically embrace... Uh, a Pakistan nuclear status and try to contain uh, uh, the issue and and make sure that the right protocols were in place to avoid uh, a miscalculation and, and and regional conflict again uh, uh, vis-a-vis India. So I, I don't think there's there's a clear uh, model here to follow. I think we have to to to, to think it uh, uh, in itself. But, but I do think that Iran has as much interest as the West to, to find a diplomatic solution. And like the previous speaker said, there's also obviously an energy oil supply dimension to it. And and But the midterms are obviously not going to help with the Republicans uh, fiercely against whatever the uh, Obama, uh, Biden administration is trying to do on the diplomatic front on Iran.
0: Uh, just very quickly, Sahil, in uh, London. We're stumbling in the dark. Uh, Fabrice says that actually we need a new strategy, but we don't know what that strategy is. Is there anything that you think
1: leads us out of this darkness? Is there a new strategy? Absolutely, dialogue on risk reduction and making sure that we deal with the fact that we have nuclear weapons. If you want to have nuclear weapons or you have them, you have to live with the responsibility and the consequences of them and explain to others how you will deal with the related challenges, right? So it's extremely important that all of the leaders of these key countries um, come together and are able to make sure that the correct scaffolding is in place so that we mitigate crises. and we mitigate conflict and war. So I think that the most important thing to do is to really have a deep reflection on how deterrence and arms control not only have always complemented one another, but that they always have had to complement one another to get us through really difficult periods like the Cold War. We don't want to get into another deep Cold War with Russia. We want to try to mitigate the risks and learn from the past mistakes that we've made so that we can ensure the safety and survivability of the entire world. And you know, that's what is at stake is really global peace and security because nuclear weapons have the ability to annihilate the entire existence of this planet.
0: I want to thank all our guests, Sahil Ashar, Fabrice Poitier, and Alexander Tito. That's it for the Inside Story podcast. This episode was produced by Kelvin N., Nihad Al-Abadi, uh, Michael Harwood, and Gemma Harris. Studio sound was by Alvaro Galan, and the program was edited by Anna Savic, Lynn Engwin, and Joe Defrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again on Monday.